Watershed Investigations podcast, Tales from the Frontline of the Water Crisis. I'm Yana Hosea and I'm here with Rachel Salvage. If any community is on the front line of a water crisis, then it has to be the people of Gaza. Since Hamas attacked Israel on the 7th of October, killing 1,200 Israelis and taking hostages, Gaza has been under unprecedented bombardment, killing more than 28,000 Palestinians, many of them children. Most of the population are displaced and living in unsanitary conditions with soaring rates of infectious diseases linked to polluted water and lack of sanitation. Children in Gaza have barely a drop to drink, according to UNICEF. This podcast is longer than usual, um, but we wanted to take a comprehensive look at the water situation in Palestine, and we have an excellent lineup of guests. We'll be speaking to Dr. Shadad Attili, lead Palestinian negotiator for water at the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, which is internationally recognized as the official representative of the Palestinian people based in Ramallah in the West Bank. We're also going to speak to Professor Alon Tal of Tel Aviv University. He is an environmentalist and water management expert who has founded several Israeli environmental organizations, and he was also a member of the Knesset with the Blue and White Centrist Zionist Coalition. Then we speak to Professor William Shabbas of Middlesex University. He's an international expert on human rights, international criminal law and genocide. He served as the president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars. He's also served as commissioner on the Sierra Leone Truth and Reconciliation Commission and was head of a UN committee investigating the 2014 Israel-Gaza conflict. And last but not least, we're also joined by Professor Mark Zaytoun of the Geneva Water Hub, a policy institute which focuses on hydro diplomacy to prevent and resolve water-related conflicts. Welcome to the Watershed podcast, uh, Dr. Attali, and um, thank you very much for joining us. We are now sort of four months into the Israeli war on Gaza and the unfolding humanitarian crisis, and now aid agencies are warning of a famine and lack of clean drinking water. South Africa, obviously, as you know, has brought a genocide case against Israel, of which water was a part. So we want to dig into that, really. But before, could you tell us a little bit about your expertise in the sort of water environment? You were the Palestinian water minister from 2008 to 2014, and I believe still involved in projects in the West Bank and Gaza. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I was the water minister until, as you said, 2014, then moved to the negotiation department, being minister without portfolio, in charge of water and environment for permanent status negotiation with Israel. So I'm working in this field in the past 25 years. So could you give us a bit of an overview of the water resources in Palestine, in Israel? So what's available and what's happening to them? In terms of water resources, it's also another conflict between us and the Israeli because when we signed Oslo Agreement in 1995, there were five issues that has been left to the permanent status negotiation. These issues are Jerusalem, settlement, border, refugees, and water question because there is a recognition of Israel of Palestinian water right, yet this right has been postponed to be defined during the permanent status negotiation. We thought that this uh, interim period is supposed to last only five years, but unfortunately, today we are in our 30th year after Oslo Agreement. Now, the population has been tripled since then. I was not married when we signed the agreement, so the allocation for water for myself at that time, now I'm sharing with four kids. Lack of resolving the water conflict has uh, also reflected on the situation in Gaza because we weren't able to access to our resources since 1967 until today. We don't have our rightful share from the Jordan River. The other resources that we do share with Israel is the groundwater aquifer, and mainly here in the West Bank. The allocation is deeply inequitable and unreasonable, which is a criteria in the international law. Wherever there is a shared resources, these should be allocated equitably and reasonably. So here I'm in Ramallah, we're not having right even to dig well. We're not having right to build a dam. So we just kept with the 15% of uh, amount given to us from all uh, resources available and the Israeli enjoying the 85. That undermined our ability to send some water to Gaza. So Gaza has been left with the only source for them, which is the groundwater aquifer underneath Gaza. 
It's part of the coastal aquifer that we also share with Israel, but we are downstream there. So Israel imposing a huge restriction here in the in the West Bank, so we cannot drill well, we cannot build dam because we are up, upstream. But in Gaza, they don't care because they are downstream. So in Gaza, almost of them, you have to know, they are refugees. They came from Safad, from Haifa, from the, what we used to call historical Palestine. 85 of them went to Gaza, okay? Now they are counting 2.3 million. In this, it's a stretch. The maximum length is 45 kilometers with a maximum width it reaches to 14 kilometers. And you're having 2.3 million. It's considered one of the most populated area on earth. And now, and now in Gaza, I take the example Rafah, where there is 1.3 million in 55 square kilometer. So it's unprecedented situation. Just to return back to the aquifer, the only source for Gaza, it's out of service. This is before the war, when the UN said that only 3% is fit for human consumption. Other remaining water is polluted, is highly saline, it doesn't fit for any kind of use. Well, you were describing there how the Israeli authorities control all water resources since 1967 and that Gaza is one of the most densely populated places in the world. So the water infrastructure and resources are obviously under a great deal of pressure. But before we dive into what's happening now in Gaza, in what ways does the Israeli occupation impact how you can provide water and sanitation services to the population of Gaza? And what was the state of the desalination and treatment plants? And how did you get clean drinking water to residents of Gaza? Since the report issued by the UN 2012, we put a plan that we call it GITAB, the emergency program that we put just to alleviate the water situation there, to recover the aquifer. And we have to purchase more water, even it's our water, but we have to purchase it until we resolve the water right issue with Israel. So we purchase more water from Israel. And we said we have also to address the sewage issue, because also wastewater is not only contaminating the aquifer, it's also discharging to the sea. And we have to reuse the treated uh, wastewater. So we put a brilliant uh, program, and thanks for the international community, we managed to build a massive sewage treatment plant, three desalination plant, and we were planning and we get really pledge from the international community to allocate half a billion dollars to build the central Gaza desalination plant. So we did almost everything, okay, in, in order to address the water situation. And now what happened? Everything has been destroyed. The first thing that Israel thought when they started reacting to what's happened on the 7th of October, is cutting water. The second is cutting electricity and fuel, because now when they cut electricity, even if you have water, if you don't have fuel and electricity to pump water, that means you don't have water. So they used water as a weapon. Sorry, what do you mean by they cut the water? Can, can you describe that? It's Minister Katz, he was responsible of energy water. He said, no water, no food, no electricity. They said, okay, we are kind of a human animal. Because there's a pipe coming in from Israel into Gaza? Yeah, there is three lines. One in the north, one in the middle, one in the south. That we're getting around 52,000 cubic meters a day that we pay for microt. They cut all these three lines. And to undermine our ability to extract water from the aquifer, they restricted the fuel and they cut the electricity. The pump will not be able to function to get water from the aquifer. Now, after 10 days, because Israel start forcing people to go to the south, because they do have plan to evacuate all the north of Gaza, one million people. So they used water as a gun just to direct people to the south. They said, okay, we open the line in the south. If you want water, go south. So this is another example of using water as a weapon. If you're looking at images, how they are shooting kids 
they cut food. So starvation, it's, it's everywhere in Gaza. And they destroy their home. So when we speak about genocide, this is all kind of genocide, my friends. It's make me really feeling heartbroken when I saw soldiers, one of them just giving a gift for his wife, blowing up a university. And what about the state of the water and sanitation infrastructure? The desalination plant, for example, have they been bombed? Can you tell us what situation they're in? Some of them has been damaged. No one can do an assessment. Some people who's working at the coastal water utility has been killed. Those technicians who want to fix some pipes, they have been killed. Okay, so we don't know the scale of damage, but what we know from the Pacific Water Authority, Coastal Water Utility, there is some sewage treatment plant has been really damaged, but none of them is working. Why? Because there's no fuel, no electricity. In terms of desalination facility that we build it with your money, okay, they're not also functioning. The only one functioning, it's the one that built in the Egyptian side. And this by the three kilometers that reached to Rafah. And we said we have to maximize this. The facility, it's in the Egyptian side, so there's no way that Israel can bombard. This facility, it gives 2,400 cubic meters a day. We need to make it up to 10. And that even will not resolve anything because today, and this is the wash cluster statement, People, they're getting three up to five liters a day. Those who's lucky, because our people in the north of Gaza, they're not getting water. We saw images of our kids, okay, drinking from the street. This water that mixed with sewage. But my friend, if, if we live there, we don't have other alternative than doing the same. Those who can yani, survive and reach to the sea, they're drinking from the sea. They don't have other alternative. Can you tell us about some of those diseases and illnesses related to dirty water that are running rife in in Gaza now? The World Health Organization has talked about a surge in the cases of diarrhea. They say there's over 160,000 cases, and many of them in children under five. Who's suffering are kids? Kids? We just read statements and reports issued by the Ministry of Health or UNICEF. They're talking about hundreds of thousands of infectious disease. The scabies, the jaundice, the flu, because also they are facing with colds. They are talking about what women are facing. They don't have proper hygiene. They don't have toilet. Is it 1.7 million people displaced to the south of Gaza? And how many people are living in tents without toilets? It's all people uh, displaced, okay? The 2.3 because no one remains in his house. They are saying 1.3 in Rafah, but no safe place there. Those who's really surviving is genocide survivor. Can I ask, before the 7th of October, when you were Palestinian water minister and you, you were speaking to your counterparts in Israel about the water situation, about the inequality of water, what was their position about not being willing to, to change the situation? We're having a committee that called the Joint Water Committee. And I called this committee because I suffered a lot when I go and meet with the Israelis to request because they have to approve every project I'm doing. So I just call myself, I'm the virtual minister, because I decide nothing, because even if to drill a well, I have to take the paper, go to the Israeli counterpart until they sign on it. So then I come and I, I behave as a minister that uh, ordering to drill a well. That was not the case. And they don't respect our decision in the Joint Water Committee. That made me, on 2010, to call this committee, it's a Mickey Mouse committee, and I walk out. They are treating us not, not like neighbor. This is before the 7th of October, before they call us as uh, animals, okay? In terms of water, they treat us as a client because they establish a massive desalination plant. They do have surplus of water. And instead of resolving our water right, giving back our rightful share, no, they're saying, you want water, you can purchase. So it's not a favor that Israel is making for us, getting us water, because we are paying. Now, in Gaza, before the 7th of October, our water doesn't fit for human consumption. 
and after the 7th of October, we don't have access to any kind of water. The ICJ gave them one month. They should behave just to tell the court that we really address our aid, humanitarian assistance. No, no, no. They are restricting everything because they don't care. No one holds them accountable. Well, Israel will say that they were attacked by Hamas on October 7th and that Hamas uses civilians as human shields. And, for example, in their defence at the International Court of Justice against South Africa's charges of genocide, they said that a rocket was launched next to Gaza's water desalination facility. So this is why it ended up getting hit. We're here speaking about water. We're not speaking about okay what's happened on 7 October because we have to tell you what happened in the past 75 years. But because the international community, they never hold them accountable, and even some of them given the right of self-defense. The right of resistance, this is something for the occupied people. It's not for the occupier. I don't know how, when we see these images coming from our kids, they don't understand why this is happening to them. A girl crying, she lost her, her arm, and she said, how am I going to cram my, my hair? Kids, this is what they're thinking about. They don't think about the life that they're going to face and uh, how they're going to live handicapped. About 17,000 kids, they lost their families. Can I ask what you think about the ICJ saying that Israel must do everything in its power to prevent genocide? I mean, is there going to be any result from that? Since the 26th until today, the average rate of killing civilian, I'm not talking about Hamas, civilian kids and women and 130 up to 180. And they became like a number. So each day that we read, okay, yesterday 150 killed. Those are not numbers. Those, they do have names, they do have dreams, they do have life, they do have families, they do have life. We are the one who rely on international law, but uh, my friend, international law gave us nothing in the past 75 years, despite 1,000 resolution, 86 UN Security Council resolution, and the remaining is the General Assembly resolution. None of them has been implemented because we differ on Iraq, because when they aim to launch war in Iraq, a one Security Council resolution was needed. There's so much to talk about, but I think just to kind of round up, how do you see things going forward for Gaza? What are your fears about what might unfold and what role Egypt might play? Before, we were expecting from Egypt much, much, much more than what Egypt is doing. They're doing a lot, thanks for them, but we're expecting more. Our people who's massacred are our people. And Gaza, they sent us back 50 years. It needs 20 years to be rebuilt. You know, without water, you will not address any of the sustainable development goal. I'm a Muslim. In our Quran, from water, we made everything living. It's a human right. They're treating us as animals. Some of them calling to bomb us with an atomic bomb. And you know, by the way, because we're talking about atomic bomb, what the bomb launched on Nagasaki, Hiroshima, weighing 14,000 ton. What has been launched on Gaza, it's exceeding 100,000 ton. But we are a determined people. We have to change things. And first thing to change, let's address the water situation and sanitation in Gaza. This is the most priority in humanitarian intervention. We're not talking about reconstructing Gaza now, but let's see how we can make people access to water and clean water and sanitation. Thank you, Dr. Attili. We did try very hard to get an interview with a spokesperson from the Israeli government, but we didn't get a response. But Professor Alan Tal, a water management expert and a former member of the Knesset and founder of the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, which promotes sustainability across the Middle East, did agree to talk to us. So thank you for joining the podcast, Professor Tal. Um, so it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about your experience and expertise in the water and conservation area and a little bit about your political career before we kick off. So I guess you could say my career has been focused on moving my country and the region to the extent I could to a sustainable place. Uh, very quickly, it became clear that Israel is no bigger than a postage stamp ecologically. 
so that if we want to make progress, we have to find ways to work in coordination with our neighbors. And that led me to help found an organization called EcoPeace Middle East, and then later found the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, which is a regional center in which Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, and other international students come and talk about a regional environmental vision. So I've been doing this for about 30 years, working with uh, partners from around the Middle East, thinking about how we can make our neighborhood a better place. Well, do you think water is being equitably distributed between Israelis and Palestinians? I mean, since 1967, Israel obviously has control over the water resources and you've got you know rural communities in the West Bank for example who lack access to water they have to have uh, rain catchments and people in Gaza aren't allowed to take water in from the West Bank do you think that it's equitably distributed or unfairly distributed so I think that we need to be pragmatic when we talk about water and stop talking about water rights and talking about water needs. The fact of the matter is, if you compare the Palestinian access to water, how many, what percentage of households actually have a connection to a reliable, clean, potable water source, you'll find that it's higher than any of their neighbors, higher than the people in Jordan, Lebanon, or Syria. What about yeah. their neighbors who are the settlers? Okay, so let me, let me just finish this point here, if I might. Okay, so I have great concerns about Israeli policies in the West Bank, which I think uh, lead us to a political impasse and that we need to show much greater flexibility in moving towards a two-state solution. That's my political belief. But I would like to make a distinction between the political issues and the hydrological issues. In other words, there's plenty of water for the Palestinians. And part of the problem for many years was the Palestinians and the West Bank refused to receive desalinized water. You know, the the, at the time, it was the largest desal plant in the entire Middle East at the Khadera coastal area. And the Americans said, we're willing to make this and give it to the Palestinians. And they were unwilling to do that because to them, they were unwilling to be dependent on the Mediterranean when they felt that the groundwater under Judea and Samaria should be the, their source of water. And my position on that would be, A, that is not enough water for what you need now. It used to be, but you're now many, many more people than you were in 1967, for sure. The population's tripled, quadrupled, whatever. And uh, moreover, we have to start looking at water regionally, creating a water market. There's absolutely no reason, once we can produce water, okay, at that kind of a price, it's no different than sand or cement or any natural resource. There's plenty to go around. So we need to move the obstacles. And I would uh, remind everybody that Israel, even though we were getting bombed, very reliably provided water to the people of Gaza. No problem. They had the best water. Well, they paid for it. They were paying a lot less than a lot of than the private people would be paying for it. I'm probably less than you're paying for your water in, in, in the UK. They are yeah. being occupied. So it's Israel's responsibility, of course. I don't think that Israel was occupying Gaza at all. We walked away from Gaza and gave them the control of that. And if they put their money into desalination and water infrastructure instead of a killing infrastructure to try to murder anybody who's Jewish and nearby, they might have the best water in the world. They certainly have access to the sea and they certainly had international support. Now, you asked about the settlers. I don't want to try to feel like you like I'm punting or being evasive. So let's talk about the settlers in the West Bank. I have uh, real concerns and I'm not at all interested in expanding Israeli presence in the West Bank. And my position on this has been known for a while. But their presence in the West Bank has absolutely nothing to do with access amongst Palestinians to water. That is done uh, separately. It's a separate source of water. And the tragedy is, I would say from the Palestinians' perspective, is that because they have been unwilling to uh, be flexible, they remain completely dependent on Mikorot, Israel's national water utility, for their water resources. Could Israel control the water resources? And the international community have recognized that Gaza is under Israeli occupation. And I suppose when I was working in the West Bank, I did cover stories where Palestinian villages were cut off from their springs because of a settler community. And the army obviously protects the settler community. That's what I saw working with the BBC there. 
I can't refer to a general uh, complaint. There may be instances where uh, there were unfair outcomes. I think as a policy expert, I try to look at the big picture. Do Palestinians have access to water, which is clean, potable, and the like? And given their uh, situation, now that in no way reflects support for, for Israeli occupation. But let's remember that uh, there are takes two to tango, that in the year uh, 2000, President Clinton tried very hard to convince Yasser Arafat to uh, make a peace agreement, which would have solved all the Palestinian water rights, but he insisted on a right of return and walked away from the table. 2008, the same was true with Condoleezza Rice, the American Secretary of State who received an uh, even more generous offer from Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. And once again, the Palestinians were the recalcitrant ones. So it's very difficult to try to separate the water issues from the political ones. Having said all that, we need to do more to work together because the fact of the matter is, is that the Palestinian infrastructure for sewage treatment is extremely poor. And the percentage of the wastewater which is treated is very, very modest. And as a result of that, we all lose water resources. There's contamination for everybody. I want to be pragmatic. Let's work together to do common sense things that allow us to have good quality water for all of us and our children. But what facilities they had in, in Gaza, if we look at what's happening in Gaza now, it's certainly not working together. There's a dire lack of clean water. The majority of the population are displaced, living in tents, you know, no toilets, lots of linked diseases to unclean water and illnesses are rife. This is according to UNICEF. And you know, some people are saying water is being weaponized. What would you say to that? I would say that's a very, very shallow argument. The 6th of October, there was no water shortages in Gaza. Gaza had tremendous access to water. In fact, we're being very wasteful at agriculture, which had no economic uh, logic there, but it was all being subsidized by the Israeli taxpayers, even though the Hamas regime threatened us. The 7th of October, all that changed. The state of Gaza, the state of Hamas attacked Israel and had the bloodiest, murderous day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And we are at war since then. So yes, in war, there has been tremendous civilian losses. It's tragic. It's heartbreaking. But let's not forget for a second who started that war. Wars are horrible things. Water sources get damaged. I think that's anomalous when you look at the last 20 years and general access of water to people in Gaza. And the tragedy in Gaza is didn't start with, with Israel, started in the 1960s. Well, yes. I mean, it started, you know, a, a lot earlier than that. And um, Gaza is under occupation. So it could probably go back and forth on who started it. You know, this has been going on for a long time. Yeah, let's, but Let's be professional here. If you want to have a serious podcast, have a serious podcast. Now, the Egyptians occupied the Gaza Strip for about 20 years, okay, starting in 1948. During that period, they had no regulation of groundwater extraction. And due to overpumping, the groundwater went down and dropped in its level, and seawater rushed in, salinized the well. In addition, there was excessive use of nitrate fertilizer. So by the time Israel occupied the uh, Gaza Strip, which they did, I'm not trying to whitewash them, we were attacked by Egypt in 1967, and we... Uh, won that war and we're not apologizing for it. But we found a terrible groundwater situation, which hasn't gotten better. The second that Israel left the Gaza Strip in 2003, when we handed them the key, so to speak, all the Israeli regulations, which had limited groundwater for sustainability reasons, were tossed out the windows. And I can understand the mentality of Gazans who felt, thank God we are free of the Israeli occupiers. But the result were thousands of what would have been considered illegal wells, which compromised the water quality of the Gaza Strip. So that's what's going on here. But before 7th of October, there was still inequality in terms of how much water people were receiving. So we've got quotes from um, UN reports and, and things like that, World Health Organization recommendations and stuff saying that I think the Palestinian water school is getting 50 to 80 litres a day when you should be getting 100 to 200, but Israelis' counterparts in the similar area would be getting 300 litres per day. If the water source is you know, one thing and it's damaged or, it, or there isn't enough to go around? How come there's still that imbalance between the two peoples? Okay, let's remember that about half the water which is delivered to the Palestinians by Israel with the subsidies of the Israeli taxpayers, about half that water leaks out of the underground water pipes. The Palestinian Authority has uh, its own priorities. It would rather pay 
the families of Shahidin, terrorists, okay, 30% of their budget, then invested in water infrastructure. That's their decision. So that's the first problem there. Now, Israeli settlers get more water than Palestinians. That is absolutely a fact. Is it fair? It depends how you look at it. They're Israeli citizens as opposed to other ones. But I would say compare the per capita water of Gazans to Jordanians, okay? I think from a very narrow perspective, anybody who wants to provide water for hygiene or for, you know, gardens, whatever, would much rather be a Palestinian than Jordanian. So I'm not saying the situation in the West Bank is fantastic. It's not as good as Israelis, okay? But it is certainly, if you look in the Middle Eastern context, it is better than almost all their neighbors. In fact, on this issue, I think there's been a long-term consensus that water is a uh, humanitarian issue and it should not be weaponized. And so the fact of the matter is, even during this Gazan war, Israel increased the amount of water delivered uh, there at the behest of President Biden, but Israel went ahead and did that. We increased, we, we, the Mikarot built additional pipes to bring them water at delivery, okay? Now, it's very hard to deliver water when the Hamas doesn't even let its people receive food, and if they try to leave areas, they get shot at. It's a very, very complicated situation there. But I don't think it's fair to say that Israel is trying to uh, make uh, weaponize water and make the people uh, die because of thirst. That would have happened a long time ago if that was the case. We could have turned those faucets off and we did not. And that is the empirical fact. On the weaponizing issues, I mean, some of the ministers, Katz and Galan, said that they were going to impose the siege. They were going to cut off the water. They're going to cut off the energy after after the atrocity on the 7th of October. And that is something that is being used by the ICJ in the, in the South Africa case against Israel, saying this is, this is genocide. So it's not a shallow argument. It's something that international communities are looking at. Well, let's remember the ICJ did not impose a, a um, interim injunction on Israel. In other words, at least ostensibly, uh, the South Africa lost that round, okay? Israel's not committing genocide in, in, in Gaza. You could say they're being uh, insensitive to civilian losses, but genocide requires a desire to wipe people out. If we wanted to wipe out the Palestinians, that would have happened a long, long time ago. That's just, a, that's just an anti-Semitic trope. But I would say that the rhetoric of these ministers was not helpful. I think it was bellicose. It was done at a time when Israel was facing its greatest trauma and it was uh, being populist to the crowd in the same way that you would take a Donald Trump uh, line and say, okay, does this represent American policy? Well, in this case, it does not. And look at what Israel's done rather than what a couple, a couple of extremist ministers uh, actually said. But there so, is uh, a lack of, there's a dire lack of water in Gaza. So they, and, and fuel, because uh, which means that they can't, they can't pump I, water. I'm very aware of that. We could end that situation tomorrow. All we needed is for Hamas to lay down its weapons. Former Prime Minister Golda Meir said once famously that, you know, if the Palestinians or the Arabs, she said, would lay down their weapons, there would be no violence. And if the Jews laid down their weapons, there would be no more Israel. We are fighting to defend ourselves. So despite the fact that, that Israel's provided so much water over the years to Gaza regularly, in this time of war, that water has been interrupted, but not because we weaponized it, but because of the mechanics of it and the fact that in terms of the fuel, Hamas needs that fuel to run its tunnel infrastructure and to continue to, to uh, wage a war against Israel. I'm ever hopeful that Israel will complete its uh, military operations sooner than later. That won't happen until we get the hostages back. We will not rest a second. But assuming that we go into Rafiach and complete that, that act and the Hamas finally does collapse, once that happens, we face what I would hope is a new reality in the Middle East. For the first time, the vast majority of Arabs who live in this region live in countries with diplomatic relations with Israel. And even though they see the same pictures on Al Jazeera as everybody else, and disturbing pictures and horrible pictures of the civilian damage, not one of those countries has even thought to cancel its diplomatic relations in, with Israel. This creates an opportunity. And I would hope with the economic muscle that countries like Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and God willing, also the Saudi Arabians can bring into a reconstruction of Gaza, they can finally give the Palestinians a reasonable shot at a future. Israelis, the majority of us at least, there is a small minority that I certainly would condemn at least as strong as you would, who would be would like to occupy forever. I don't want to tell the Palestinians how to live their lives. I would like to live safely side by side, and I'd like to see them have access to water. Thank you, Professor Tao. 
Israel is facing charges of genocide for their war on Gaza at the International Court of Justice, and we wanted to explore what role, if any, water might play in this case. So we're joined now by Professor William Shabas, a respected genocide expert, and also Professor Zaytoun, a recognised expert on water and conflict who has supported water negotiations throughout the Middle East and Africa. Firstly, Professor Shabas, how have we got to this point where some people say water is being weaponized? My starting point really is the declaration by a minister in Israel in the middle of October of 2023, who said that they were going to cut off water as well as food, electricity, and medicines to the people of Gaza. And I understand that that was largely done. And in addition, that installations necessary to provide potable water to the people of Gaza have been attacked and destroyed so that the vast majority of the people now in the Gaza Strip are not getting access to water and things that go with it like sanitation. And this is my area of expertise, really, the deprivation, deliberate deprivation of potable water and of access to water in general has consequences in international criminal law. And it can be fit within the definitions of three categories of crimes that are punishable by the International Criminal Court under the Rome Statute. And that would be war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And of course, is being taken up in the litigation, the famous case filed by South Africa in January against Israel, and for which we now have a provisional measures order that I think arguably has consequences also in terms of the provision of of water because it requires Israel to take positive steps to alleviate what it calls a catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. Israel has to make a report on this and so we'll all be waiting to see on the 26th of February possibly there'll be references to the water situation. We'll have to see. Obviously, there was a court order, but I mean, the court could have taken a stronger stance to ask for a ceasefire if they really thought South Africa had such a strong case. Or what's your reading of that? No, I think this has been misinterpreted or misunderstood. Uh, The order showed a remarkable unanimity. Since the order was issued, the court has issued a judgment in a case that's related in the sense that it also deals with the Genocide Convention. This is the the judgment it issued on the 2nd of February between Ukraine and Russia. And there, the court threw out the claims of Ukraine. They said, this is not a matter that falls under the Genocide Convention. So I think the explanations are complicated, and I think that it's been that failure to address it has resulted in uh, various types of spin being put on the order. One, that the court didn't go as far as it could have done. The other was that in some way it was giving its blessing to Israel's invasion. None of this, I think, is is accurate. And what role did water play in South Africa's case? There's reference to it in the application by South Africa, but how big a role this will play in the case is, is yet to be seen. That's because the application is a very preliminary step South Africa will file its memorial, that is its case, later this year, perhaps September. The court will make such an order very soon. And I would expect that the water issue will play a significant part in the submission, but it's too early to say at this point. Because they did make quite a a part of the submission, the ministers and officials, such as the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, saying that Israel was imposing a complete siege on Gaza and there would be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Do you think that's quite a key point? I do, and I'm quite confident that it will play an important role in the detailed submissions. It's also quite significant, I think, and I referred to this in an expert opinion that I submitted in the case that's proceeding before the courts in the United States filed by the Center for Constitutional Rights, where one of the issues they're addressing is the obligation of states to prevent genocide imposed on all parties to the Genocide Convention, including the United States. So this obligation exists even if it's undecided yet by the courts that genocide has taken place. As long as there's a serious risk, states have an obligation to act to prevent it. I thought that the threats to deprive the people of Gaza of water and of other necessities of life 
since those threats were made in mid-October of 2023, the seriousness of the risk has become more apparent. Professor Zaitoun, could you help us sort of step back a little bit and talk to us about the resources available to Israel and Palestinian territories, the management of that, how it's shared out or not, and um, how that's kind of played a part into to getting where we are today? All people in Gaza get their washing water and uh, water for irrigation from the aquifer, and it was really a good water source. But then in 1948 with the Nakba, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians forced onto Gaza. Again in 1967, population doubled, tripled, quadrupled very quickly, and that water resource was being pumped beyond its sustainable limits quite quickly. The same aquifer was also being overpumped in Israel during the same period in the 1970s and 1960s. In Israel, they managed to develop alternative supplies, whereas in Gaza, that was never the case. So people in Gaza have been abstracting through wells, which means that um, the seawater is actually intruding. Well, 2024, 7th of October, the aquifer was in pretty bad shape. Most of it wasn't drinkable, but you could wash and you could certainly irrigate with it. And people would get their drinking water either through bottled water from Egypt or from desalination plants. So if you cut off the trade of the bottled water, if you cut off energy, then there's no way to pump this water anymore. Then there's no way to treat the sewage anymore. Now all that sewage is percolating down through the sand into the aquifer that people must rely upon for drinking these days. Or it's standing in the streets, mixing with the rainwater, spreading disease around it. If what we hear is true, that the Israeli Defense Forces have been flooding the, some of the tunnels that Hamas has built with seawater, but just make it that much worse and make treating it that much more difficult. I could collapse in the sense that it won't be usable, possibly even for growing crops, which is a source of livelihood and conditions of life. If we want to come back to the definition of the UN Convention on Prevention of Genocide, which I would actually like to ask William about. Would ruining the water source count in your opinion? Yes, absolutely under the notion of siege. It's depriving the population of necessities of life, principally water and food. The convention makes very clear that this has to be done with the specific intent to destroy the group. And that's the crux of what the debate will be about when the South African case goes to what we call the merits. I wanted to ask you, William, and and to put Israel's points across that they had raised in the genocide case. You know, Israel blames Hamas because they say that they fire rockets in civilian areas, use the population as a human shield. And for example, they say they fired a rocket by a water desalination or a water sanitation plant, which was presumably why it got bombed. Can you tell us a bit about the legal point of view from Israel's point of view? Well, what Israel is trying to do is to defend the acts it's taking as being legitimate acts in an armed conflict, and it's often placed in the context of the right of self-defense. The question of what are legitimate acts in armed conflict is something that falls to another body of law than the Genocide Convention. The rules can be summarized as you have, can only target military objectives, and so when, when Israel says that they're being used to fire missiles, this may have the consequence of making a facility for water a legal target. It always has to be done with a view of proportionality, bearing in mind the consequences to the non-combatants who have to be protected at all costs. And this is really where the big complaint with Israel comes, is that when it's using force, it is using it in a manner that is indiscriminate or arguably targeting civilians. This is a a difficult threshold to appreciate as well, and it's something that will be assessed by judges at some point. So when you have the minister saying at the beginning of the uh, military activity that we are going to deprive the people of Gaza of water, then it sheds a, a particular light on acts that involve an attack on a facility that is providing the water. And it makes the argument that this was a deliberate attack more plausible. Uh, whereas often in war, 
there is collateral damage. And the answer from the state has to be, we took all possible precautions to minimize civilian damage. A lot of what Israel's doing seems to suggest that it isn't concerned about the collateral damage. I mean, everybody knows these notorious figures about the number of children who have been killed, 12,000 children out of 27,000, to put it in perspective, if you compare it with the military activity in Ukraine since the end of February 2022, you have fewer than 1,000 children who've been killed in a population of Ukraine, which is 20 times the population of Gaza. And where does using water to sort of to move populations around fit into that picture? For example, cutting water off in a certain area to get populations to, to move into the south. How does that fit into the kind of legal framework? Is that something that is acceptable? It doesn't fit as clearly within the definition of genocide, but forced displacement of populations is a crime against humanity and a war crime. You know, there's a gray zone between forced displacement and genocide. Back in November, several Western states, Canada, France, the UK, Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands combined and made a submission to the International Court of Justice in another case on genocide. There are three cases on genocide at the International Court of Justice right now. So the other case is the one that Gambia filed against Myanmar at the end of 2019. And in that submission, these Western states argued that forced displacement could be a relevant factor in determining genocide. They invited the court, in effect, to adopt a more liberal and generous approach to the definition of genocide than it has in its previous cases. And so that's where using water to manipulate those population transfers might also be factored into not only a a war crimes case, but a genocide case. Professor Shabazz, we do probably have to ask you for transparency reasons. In 2014, when you were with the UN, you were criticised for bias against Israel. So I was hoping, you know, you might just address that. Yes, well, I was appointed to the Commission of Inquiry by the Human Rights Council, and I was immediately attacked quite uh, viciously by Israel and some of its supporters for lacking impartiality. The fact that someone expresses a view previously on a subject doesn't mean they can't be impartial when they're involved in some function where they're required to be impartial. I think that the report that came out demonstrated that it was impartial. It actually began by criticizing Hamas and the Palestinians uh, in the report. And there's nothing in the report that suggests that the commission lacked impartiality. Thank you so much for for saying that. There are, of course, uh, the WHO are reporting 160,000 plus cases of diarrhea, many amongst children under five, because of the lack of sanitation and so forth. And so many displaced people, they're living in tents, there's no toilets. Do the long-term ramifications have a legal standing The fact that this is going to continue going forward provides further evidence, if you want, of the deliberate nature of them. As I say, quite exceptionally, the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to take immediate measures to address the humanitarian catastrophe. The relevance in terms of the future, because all of these consequences are already well known, the hygiene crisis, the spread of diseases, Israel has been called upon to address this. I would expect that if it's going to demonstrate compliance, there had better be some evidence that it's attempting to alleviate and address the problem of water in Gaza. Mark, you've been involved in other areas of the world where there have been conflicts around water. Can you give us the benefit of some of your insights into what's happened in those places, how it has panned out legally, but also just on the ground for the people that are suffering in these kind of cases? Water can be either a tool of war to meet military objectives, or it's a victim of war. And there's a long history of this. Leonardo da Vinci drew up plans to divert the Arno River from Pisa for just such purposes. Rivers can be used to flood out people. So think about the British campaigns during World War II, the Dam Busters campaign. 
you know, on the Ruhr River, the destruction of the dam there killed about 19,000 people, 12,000 of whom were women and children, and most of whom were actually Russian prisoners of war forced to work in Germany. The Kharkova Dam has been bombed recently in Ukraine, dropping the reservoir level there to a dangerous level for the nuclear power plant, also lowering the water supply for the canal that feeds Crimea. Water can be used for baiting, as in Sarajevo, where the snipers would set up near water points because water had been disrupted. Um, so the men would go out and be sniped down and they would send the women out to collect water and they would be shot down. You can use water to cleanse the territory. In 2006 in Lebanon, roughly a third of the public water reservoirs were damaged. The only source of information that I could have at that point was that this was done probably to keep people who had fled to Beirut from returning because there's no water to come back to. You don't, you don't come back. But we can also think of water as a victim of conflict. You know, there could be a legitimate military target right beside a water treatment plant. The impact of damage to water systems endures long after the dust has settled and well beyond the blast zone. And this is what we're seeing in Gaza and on a scale that I haven't seen or even heard of anywhere else in the world or in history. Since we recorded, Algeria tabled a UN Security Council draft resolution calling for a ceasefire and for aid to be delivered into Gaza. Algeria's representatives said that rejecting it constitutes an approval of starvation and voting for it would defend the right to health and life and asked how many innocent lives must be sacrificed before the council deems it necessary to call for a ceasefire. The United States representative vetoed the resolution, saying that the Council should instead pressure Hamas to return Israeli hostages, and once they are returned, there will be a temporary ceasefire to deliver aid, which they say can build on making it more long-lasting. So no end in sight yet for Gazan civilians so desperate for the basic needs of survival. The water crisis will continue to deepen without immediate intervention and the cessation of hostilities. That's all from us. Thank you for listening. Thank you.